vacation every single day because I love my occupation. Hey, I'm on vacation. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. Hey, I'm on vacation every single day because I love my occupation. Welcome to How To OT where we bring research, experience, and expertise in occupational therapy directly to you. As always, I'm your host, Matt Brandenburg. On today's show, we have special guest, Quinn Taminski, who is truly an OT and mental health trailblazer. I ask some good questions, some bad questions, and Quinn gives all great answers. We talk about how occupational therapists can work with marginalized populations, how to find and connect clients to resources, how to start working in community mental health if that's something you want to get into. Finally, we emphasize how to promote positive mental health in any setting of occupational therapy. Let's get to it. Well, Quinn, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I wanted to go ahead and ask you if you'd like to introduce yourself a little bit to, to our listeners. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about your background um, and your research expertise. Sure. So, hi, I'm Quinn Taminski. Um, I am an instructor in the program of occupational therapy at Washington University School of Medicine. Um, I have a background in community-based mental health. I didn't really know that that's where I was going to go in terms of my career, but um, it ended up being my first love. I did a lot of research in it in school and got my first uh, job out of school at a community-based mental health setting here in St. Louis, where I worked with men who were experiencing serious mental illness and some kind of co-occurring substance abuse so um, and some experiences of homelessness and was at that agency for five years and before I transitioned back to academia, but that is certainly my first love in the population that really excites me. Um, and so my research has largely, largely kind of stayed in that same vein. I kind of really started to focus on individuals experiencing homelessness. Um, I think that there's a lot OT can do in that sector. And, um, you know, a lot of it is how do we get into those programs and how do we fund those programs? And, um, you know, kind of proving that we can exist there and, and work there so that we have a seat at the table. That's awesome. Um, and a lot of the programs that you are developing or researching um, to develop in the future, uh, they really focus on improving occupational participation and quality of life for marginalized populations, as you said, specifically the homeless population. Um, and I wanted to ask you, how does that look different from improving? occupational participation and quality of life uh, for some more commonly seen populations that practitioners might see on a daily basis. Yeah, and I think there's a couple things that go into that. Um, you know, kind of one of the, my lines of research is this idea of non-sanctioned occupations or this idea that um, historically OTs who are white middle class females um, tend to kind of eschew some of the occupations that maybe um, we're not comfortable talking about or we don't participate in ourselves, um, such as things like maybe substance abuse or um, what we call resource seeking, meaning like any way to kind of make ends meet, um, as well as maybe some unacceptable social or risky social behaviors. And so I think, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I think 
we as a profession haven't decided yet whether we encourage participation in that um, because it doesn't lead to health and well-being, but we certainly have to know what our clients are participating in. Um, and I tend to largely operate on a harm reduction model, meaning that I really um, want to encourage participation, but lessen the harm that the actual occupation does for the person. So a really good example of that is when we work with a client who maybe is um, HIV positive, rather than kind of reducing the amount of risky sexual behavior that they're having, um, because we know that that's meaningful for them, we're actually looking at like providing condoms so that, you know, that we're not transmitting HIV to other individuals. So that's kind of an example of um, harm reduction. So when we look at increasing participation in marginalized populations, I think one thing is to really keep an open mind and be less biased about the occupations that they're participating in and ensuring that the occupations that we are encouraging are the ones that they really want to do, not the ones that we think that they should do. And I think the second part of that is resources. Um, you know, we know that especially individuals in marginalized populations spend larger amounts of their time meeting their basic needs and kind of, um, getting the things that they need to be meet basic needs, i.e. like working longer shifts because they have to meet those basic needs. And so occupations of choice or occupations of leisure are less done. And so we do a lot of leisure exploration in these populations. Like what are things that you can do that are free and low cost and, you know, that you've never tried before? How do you even you know, get a hobby. And so in our population, it's really about access to occupations and then allowing the people to choose their occupations. Awesome. That sounds, that sounds great. Um, a quick follow-up question on, on harm reduction. Um, yeah. I'm just thinking as a practitioner, uh, maybe in, in whatever setting, if you're seeing someone and um, they are engaging in these kind of covert occupations, if a practitioner feels kind of uncomfortable um, acknowledging or addressing uh, their engagement in that occupation, uh, what would you suggest to them how to bring it up or how to, uh, how to talk about that with a client? Yeah, and I think that's really hard. I think it's very difficult to get good at talking about occupations you're uncomfortable with, especially those that are maybe illegal or those that are surrounding sex tend to be very uncomfortable. And so I think it's kind of twofold. One is really um, allowing the client to lead the conversation and just asking those probing questions and letting them use their knowledge of that occupation to guide you. And then you as an OT, kind of your instincts kick in and you know where to go from there. Um, and then in terms of the other part being getting good at just having these conversations is practice. Um, practice having these conversations with people in your lives. Um, practice them in the mirror. The more that you can get comfortable saying the words associated with it, the more you're gonna feel comfortable um, having these conversations at large with your clients. And so I think that's really important is our comfort level in asking these questions and knowing what questions to ask. So, you know, that's something that I'm really passionate about is that assessment tools really um, facilitate practitioners to ask the questions that we don't think to ask. We so often ask questions like, um, you know, are you in a relationship? Are, are you having, you know, are you happy in your relationship? But we rarely ask people about their sexual relationships, right? Even though we know that sex is an occupation. And so in knowing what questions to ask becomes really important too. Absolutely. So kind of to summarize, it sounds like your approach um, in working with the homeless population uh, is to allow things to be client led, uh, to reduce harm where you can, and also to explore different resources and, and options for occupations um, that are um, in their, I guess, capabilities of engaging in. Um, yeah. And I was going to say, and to add to that really quickly, um, the only thing 
that I wanted to say is about it being client-led. There mm-hmm. are some populations where we can maybe have a better idea what someone's going through. Um, and certainly not all of us have had a stroke and certainly not all of us have, you know, experienced um, what it's like to be on the autism circuit spectrum, but a large number of us have also never experienced homelessness. And the culture associated with homelessness is so different um, than maybe to t- typical societal culture. And so that's why it's so important that it's societal-led because there are occupations and there are social norms that are completely acceptable within the homeless population that are not necessarily acceptable or vice versa. And so that's why it's so important for it to be client-led. I mean, that's true in all populations. Um, but I think that's an even better rationale for the homeless population. Absolutely. And kind of a, another support for your approach in, in allowing things to be client-led. Um, mm-hmm. That's a great point. And, and I wanted to ask, uh, what outcomes have you seen in working with clients using um, those specific aspects of, of your approach? Yeah, so we're we're certainly collecting data, and in terms of like hard data, um, we're we're kind of in the process of analyzing that. But anecdotally, we're seeing I mean huge changes in our clients. I mean, we're getting we do satisfaction surveys in our student run clinics so that we can kind of see how student, how clients are feeling, and overwhelmingly, clients are telling us that you're the only person who's listening to me. Um, I feel heard here. Um, I feel like I can do what I want and these groups matter to me because I'm choosing what they're about. And so those things are really important to us. Um, Kind of on a larger scale, I think the biggest um, outcome we're seeing is that the agency has really embraced OT. So from the top down, um, all of the directors have really said, you know, this is benefiting our clients and we're seeing changes in our clients because of it. Um, So much so that they, you know, they're willing to hire full-time OTs, which is something that this agency, we didn't dream that they would do that years ago. Um, And so I think, you know, we're starting to see those changes and certainly we are collecting like empirical data so that we can prove those things. Um, But we're just not far enough into some of our data collection yet. But overall, we are seeing massive amounts of change um, just in the culture and the thoughts related to how we're treating this population and how everyone is in in that agency is seeing OT related to this population. Uh, That's amazing, Um, especially those firsthand accounts of OT being the only people that listen. Um, I I could imagine in other settings, say, for example, a hospital, um, people might feel pretty similarly um, and that they don't have a lot of control of their decisions. Uh, maybe they're more being talked to than uh, having conversations with others. So kind of incorporating these same approaches in another setting could have some of the same outcomes. Yeah, and, and I don't think these approaches are novel at all. I mean, they're kind of the basis of OT, right? We're client-centered and, um, you know, I teach therapeutic communication. So obviously that's a huge part of um, being an OT. Um, but I think sometimes we get in practice and um, our lives get take over and you get on autopilot and, you know, we sometimes forget the the trauma and the emotions that people feel. And so as someone who really is trying to be very in tune with everyone's mental health, for me, it's really important to, to really see that as a whole person and really care about how they think and how they feel, not just like how they participate. Awesome. I, I, I want to kind of um, focus now on one of your uh, recent research publications uh, that highlighted some statistics that I'd love to share with our listeners and talk about with you. It was from an article about community-based experiences to enhance um, OT student clinical skills uh, with clients who have mental illness. And I'm just going to read through some of the stats that, that were in this article. Um, sure. one, in, one in five Americans experience mental illness. 
for one in 25 Americans, mental illness interferes with completing their daily activities. So I did some rough estimates. By no means was it, you know, standardized statistical analysis. Um, but there's approximately 327 million people in America. And one twenty-fifth of that number is 13 million and 88,000 people estimated who report that mental illness interferes the completion of their daily activities. And then I looked at some OT numbers as well. Tell me if you find this interesting or not. Um, but yeah. About 3% of occupational therapists actually work in a mental health setting. And there's approximately, there's between like 110 and 120,000 OTs in the country. Um, so roughly estimating again, that's between like 3,000 and 4,000 occupational therapists working with a potential client population of over 13 million. Yeah. And we know that kind of in the United States, and I think kind of in Western society, there is a mental health workforce shortage. That is not just OTs, that includes social workers and counselors and psychiatrists. We do not have enough mental health resources, not to mention the funding for them, um, for the number of individuals who are experiencing mental illness that impacts functioning. And certainly there are people who are experiencing mental illness who it isn't impacting functioning, but could still benefit from um, mental health resources. And so, um, yeah, I'm always encouraging OT students to go into mental health, but I think the big um, issue that we're seeing, and I've had this conversation with many other faculty members, is that um, the jobs don't exist. And so it's really daunting for a student to come out and say, I want to do mental health and I am going to create my own job. That's hard to do. Um, we encourage it, but it's really hard to do. And um, I think if, if anything's an example of it is, is the work that I've done, but it's, it's taken me a couple of years to get to the point where they finally said like, you know, yeah, we're, we're ready to, we're ready to pull that trigger. But, you know, unfortunately, I was salary that entire time because that would have been a lot harder. Absolutely. And, and you've done a lot to, to create positions and to increase the services available to people with mental health disorders. What would you suggest to OTs looking to, to work in this field? What kind of things can they do to, to, yeah. to follow your footsteps, I guess? Yeah, I mean, so there's a few things. I will say in St. Louis, we are quite lucky um, because the state of Missouri um, and uh, a lot of practitioners are very familiar with kind of the the state legislation laws um, surrounding QMHP, which is the Qualified Mental Health Prote Practitioner status. Um, we are incredibly fortunate in the state of Missouri that after one year of occupational therapy practice, um, you can become a qualified mental health practitioner, um, which is so important because it really... Um, lends to reimbursement and a lot of um, facilities have to hire qualified mental health practitioners. And so OT in Missouri has that status, which is why we probably see a lot more mental health OTs in, in the state of Missouri than in other places. So, I mean, first things first is you have to know what your state laws are and you have to work with your um, state legislator to change those laws. And if you're a student, I was just suggesting to one of my students the other day that maybe that would be a great place um, for her deck to be able to actually spend time working towards changing those laws, which is going to benefit so many OTs in the end and ultimately her too, because she really wants to work in mental health in a different state. Um, so that's kind of the first thing is know your laws. Um, if for some reason OTs are, you know, you're fighting that fight, but you can't be there yet. Um, is there a way that you can work in mental health without the title of OT or in a position that doesn't require QMHP? So this is one of the things that it's really hard when you're a new practitioner to kind of swallow that um, excitement about being an OT and finally getting called that, but a lot of agencies are willing to hire case managers or things like that, um, that they will hire an OT for, um, but you won't necessarily be called an OT, but you can still use your OT lens and really provide 
OT services to the point where you infiltrate that agency and really get them to, to see the point of OT and maybe eventually allow you to, to take on that role. Um, and then I kind of some other ways to do it are, you know, see if local academic institutions will allow you to kind of work for them while you develop programs out in the community. We have, we're really fortunate at WashU that we have community practice. So we have OTs that are working out in the community. They're kind of under the umbrella of WashU. So that's, those are good options. Um, Really funding becomes the issue, but don't be, don't be afraid to go to them and say, this is why you want an OT. Here's examples. Um, I have a friend of mine who created like a beautiful evidence chart that um, talks about, uses all this evidence to demonstrate what OTs do. And so it would talk about common um, concerns that individuals with mental illness would have. And then it would give a case example, and then it would give an evidence-based treatment um, and outcome for that specific concern. And so this is a, I, I tell her, I use this document all the time. It's great to give agencies and say, this is what we do. And it's, it's based on evidence and there are outcomes for it. Um, and you know, are you willing to give it a try? And then the other part is grant writing. So, um, like I said, our agency finally agreed that they would be hiring an OT, but it, it came through a grant. Um, so they were willing to write an OT into their grant, knowing it wouldn't start until, um, 2020, but they were willing to do that. And so I think those are, you know, that's kind of the important things you have to be willing to maybe supplement your income for a while because mental health jobs, especially right out the gate, aren't the most um, lucrative, you know, pick up some PRN on the weekends, ask if you can do four days so you can pick up a PRN day to kind of supplement that income. But if mental health is really where you want to be, it just takes a little bit to get your foot in the door. And then um, once you're in there, the kind of the options are endless. That's a lot of steps. And it sounds like a lot of self advocacy. <laughs> but you know, if you're confident in your OT skills, which hopefully all our listeners are, go for it, right? Yes, absolutely. So one thing I've heard you say often uh, in, the, in class as, as my professor um, is that every client and case is a mental health case. Can you speak more to exactly what you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something I really have tried and tried to instill in my students. So it's good that you hear me say that. Um, but every client is a mental health client. It doesn't matter where you are, whether you're in a school base, whether you're in acute care, inpatient, um, skilled nursing, everything like that, because every person has feelings and every person has emotions and every person has mental health and mental wellness. And so I think it's important that we as OTs um, are really tuning into that and almost kind of ensuring that we're providing that mental health promotion aspect. So, um, anybody with a new diagnosis or um, disability or illness or injury is at risk um, for developing mental health concerns, right? Um, any part of grief is really scary. Changing change is scary, especially if now you have to live with um, new symptoms or decreased functioning or things like that. Um, and so it's really important that we are putting things in place to keep people's mental health positive. And, and those don't have to be things that go beyond your scope of practice. Um, you know, for example, someone who has, who has had a recent stroke and has to relearn some ADLs um, can really increase their well-being through self-efficacy. So when they start to see that they're able to, you know, do one part of their dressing or do one part of their grooming routine, really pointing that out and saying like, you weren't able to do this yesterday. This is huge. We are going to get you back to being able to largely take care of yourself. That's increasing self-efficacy, which is in the long-term increasing, you know, mental health. The other things are provide them small coping skills that they can do during the day. That takes you a few minutes to talk about right before you leave the room. Hey, what are you going to do today to, you know, 
to, to make sure that you, you keep smiling. Are you gonna, you know, do you need to meditate? Do you need to take a walk? Do you need to, you know, call a family member? Do you need to watch your favorite show? What are the things that are you going to do? I want you to take 10 minutes of your day for you during this busy rehab or in this skilled nursing facility. So it's really important that we're kind of pushing mental health in every setting with every client we're seeing, because if we're ignoring someone's mental health, we may see their physical health not getting better just because of the kind of cognitive emotional link that we're seeing. They may just be unwilling to continue to, to change if they're having, if they're struggling with a lot of mental health concerns. Yeah. Those mental health and physical health are so interconnected and like, like we touched on earlier, there's so many people who already are reporting that their mental health is interfering with their ability to do their daily occupations. And mm-hmm. like you mentioned, it's probably even more than the number that's being reported. But like 13 million, that's still so much. There's only 6 million people that live in Missouri. It's basically more than two full states. Um, Absolutely. There's definitely a need. Um, But thank you so much for those recommendations to OTs everywhere on how they can address mental health and whatever practice they're in. Absolutely. Another thing you touched on was, uh, was resources and the importance of educating on resources and connecting clients to resources. Um, And you do a lot of work collaborating with local agencies um, to provide those services. How would you recommend that OTs in general increase their collaboration with uh, community agencies? Yeah, that's something that I have really learned a lot about in the, you know, in probably the last three years and in just starting this program um, with a community agency. And I think we as OTs um, really know what we want to do. And we tend to think that we um, know how to make something better. And we we largely do, but um, the agency is also really proud of what they've developed. And I think it's important that we take that into account. And so when I first started working in the homeless service agency, um, I went in and said, you know, I really want to do this OT. I, you know, I kind of see that you guys are in need of services during the day. Would you kind of just let me try it out? Um, so, you know, we started with free labor, which I did have the ability to do because at the time I was um, doing a capstone project. So, you know, I had the ability to do that and I understand that everybody did. Um, so I started really small and they, they were able to see the benefit of it. And all along, um, I constantly told them that my program's job is to increase you know, the independence of their clients and to serve the agency. And so I think that's really important that all of these projects we do are serving the agency. We ensured that we did a needs assessment before we grew anything. We ensured that we talked to all the senior directors of um, all of the programs that this agency offers so that we knew what they already had and what they were struggling with. What were the things that we could help with? And so all along, everything I offer them, I always say, will this help your agency? Um, will this help your clients? And is this something you're willing to do? And so really letting the agency drive the program. And then that's where we use our OT lens. I think like sometimes, like I said, sometimes OTs, we come in and we know what will make it better, um, but we can't discount the agency. And I think that's so, so essential in creating these partnerships. And then spending time there, it's so easy sometimes for us to breeze in and breeze out um, and not really get to know the people at the agency. And I've really formed some really nice friendships with a lot of the um, the folks at the agency to the point where they know me, they know OT, um, and that allows me to advocate. And then I meet with anyone and anyone I can in an agency. I um, Don't be afraid to leave wherever you are, whether that's an academic setting, don't be afraid to leave your office or 
leave your clinic and go out and meet people. Um, I just take meetings after meetings and say, like, let me tell you about OT and tell me, tell me where you think this would be helpful. And sometimes we get clients out of it. Sometimes we don't, but just be willing to take those meetings. I think is so important. Awesome. That, that was the next question I was going to ask if, what would you recommend to OTs who, who want to um, branch out or, or gain this knowledge about community resources available? Yeah. And I was saying, the only thing I'll add, and it's in one of those articles, um, uh, Claudette Fetty and I talk about volunteering. If you want to get into mental health and maybe you're not ready to make that leap yet, um, you need the stability of, you know, maybe your acute care job or some job that's very stable, feel free to start volunteering. Both of us started um, the programs that we started just by showing up. We show up and then we talk to people and we say, this is what OT does while we're there volunteering, maybe in the evenings. And then before you know it, they know you, they trust you. And then you say, when you say, hey, I, I was thinking about you know, this program, would you let me try it? They're much more willing to do it. So you know, start it as a kind of a side project and grow it into a career. Awesome. So as, as you know, and hopefully our listeners know by now, the motivation for this podcast is to improve best practices within the field of OT um, by bridging the gap between research findings and practitioners. Um, and I think you've already given a lot of recommendations and suggestions and your own experience on how you've kind of improved uh, practice. Uh, what, would, what are some recommendations that you would give to OTs um, on how to improve what they do on a daily basis? Yeah, so um, in terms of giving these examples, I think I'm just going to give them related to the homeless population because I think so often um, our clients who are homeless get overlooked. And so some some recommendations I have for you are to really um, understand the homeless population in whatever setting you see. Because I see them, you know, in the homeless service agency or in the shelter, but you may see them in acute care hospitals. They seek a lot of emergency and kind of acute health care. And so if you're seeing them in an acute care setting, you need to be ensuring that the, that the treatment you're providing them there is the kind of treatment that they're getting at home. So think about their environmental context. Um, I have a friend who always says, how often do we practice bed mobility from the floor? If you're sleeping on the floor, then, you know, being able to roll in a bed or, um, you know, stand up from a bed is not going to really benefit you because that's not what your environment's going to be like at home. Um, if you're seeing them in a place where you're looking at more at IADLs, make sure you're asking them what IADLs they're actually doing. If they're living in a shelter, they're not cooking their own meals because the shelter's providing them. And a lot of times they're not doing their own laundry. The shelter is um, collecting everyone's laundry and doing it and redistributing it. And so what are the actual IADL, IADLs that are important? And we've had to really do a lot of research into how do we teach things um, to ensure that we're teaching the ways they're going to do them? So for example, um, a friend of yours, Matt, has put together a, um, for his doctoral project, he put together um, a health management and maintenance course for individuals experiencing homelessness. And one of the things we did is we really looked at how do they do these occupations so that we're ensuring that we're not giving them extra things to do. So for example, when we talk about nutrition, it's not appropriate to tell clients who are experiencing homelessness to go out and buy fresh fruits and vegetables at the grocery store. They don't have the opportunity to do that. They're likely living in a food desert where there aren't grocery stores that carry fresh fruits or vegetables. Um, and they get a lot of their meals at the shelter. So what are our options? So, you know, kind of in our, our research and in our discussions with our homeless clients that we, um, you know, were able to put this together, we learned that, you know, let's have them be able to judge the nutritional content of the meal that they're served. And then a lot of them like to buy snacks and they buy snacks at the lo local McDonald's and the local 
um, gas station. And so we actually then discussed what are the best options that you can buy at a gas station or at McDonald's that are going to supplement your meals that are going to give you some nutritional content. And so those are kind of the conversations that we're having. We're really ensuring that we're tailoring it to these clients. Um, and that's really, you know, that's really best practice is making sure that we're teaching them things to their need. And the other part, and I would be remiss if I don't say this, is health literacy, health literacy. Um, we really need to look at like the information that we're giving them. So many of our clients leave um, the hospital with tons and tons of paperwork. And I know the OTs aren't directly giving that, but if you're giving them precautions or, you know, kind of a worksheet with precautions on them or a worksheet with exercises on them, what's their literacy level? Can they read that? Do they understand what it's telling them? You know, we have to do more than just handing someone to someone, something to someone and walking out of the room. It really has to be, how are you going to do this in your daily lives? And if you're giving them discharge recommendations, are they actually going to be able to do them? Don't just give them, go here and pick up this piece of DME because are they going to be able to get there? Are they going to be able to get the DME home? And are they going to even be able to keep the DME at the shelter? So these are the important things to think about. It's not really feasible for someone to have a commode at a shelter. There's hours and hours of, of experience with this population and, and research with this population um, that, you know, supports you giving these recommendations. Uh, so absolutely. Thank you very much. I wanted to ask you, um, obviously don't feel like you need to, uh, but if you have like a, a specific clinical example or maybe a, a certain case that, that you saw um, that kind of illustrates how your findings and, and your research and the things you do um, in your field, how they kind of improved health outcomes. Is, is there something like that you could share with us? Sure. Um, so, you know, I think in terms of a case, one of the best cases is um, – a client of mine who I've known, I've known him for about a year and a half now. Um, I knew him when he was in the shelter. Um, and I kind of actually just kind of walked up to him one day at the shelter because I'd seen him a few times. He's a pretty open guy. Um, and I was like, hey, you want to come down to the clinic? You know, we kind of do fun things. We help you learn the skills that you need. You know, we don't do housing. Our job is not to get you housing, but we'll get you all the skills so that when you do get that housing, you're able to maintain it. And, um, he was willing to come and came to us consistently and ended up moving into his own place. Um, and we've actually gone out and seen him since he's been in his own place. That's one thing I'm really big on is the fact that OT in the homeless population can't end the minute the person gets housed um, because it's actually that transition period. That's the hardest part. Um, and there's a lot of isolation that occurs with that. So just having someone um, to call, but he's one, he, um, he is diabetic. He, um, has some COPD and he has some unspecified mental illness. Um, his diagnosis history is kind of all over the place. So we're not exactly sure what it is. And there's kind of some sort of cognitive delay associated with it. Um, but he has done so much to take charge of his own health since he's been in the apartment. He will call and make his own doctor's appointments um, and then let us know if for some reason he can't get there, if he's out of bus passes that week or just needs a ride. And we're happy to provide those things for him. Um, largely, we give him bus passes um, to ensure that he can get where he needs to get. Um, and then we've done a lot of nutrition education with him. So with his diabetes, um, he really likes to cook high fat foods um, and eat a lot of sugar. And so we've been really, you know, having discussions about what are healthier things you can eat and gone to the grocery store with him. And kind of um, one of the things we do is when you get a box from a food bank, what, what do you cook in there? What can you make with the things that you get in there? Um, and so all of those are things, but I think w the biggest thing I can talk about with him just in managing his health is the consistency of having us in his life and having someone he can call. Um, 
you know, when things are just going bad. And so even in terms of mental health promotion, it's kind of, we have become not his only support system, just part of his support system. Thank you so much. Quinn, thanks again for your time. Uh, that just about does it for questions from my end. I guess the, the only last thing I would ask is uh, where listeners can find some more of your research or what resources you'd like to recommend to, to our listeners. Absolutely. Um, so I've got kind of a, a whole bunch of stuff um, that's kind of been accepted and is coming out. But one of the biggest things I'll point you to is if you're really interested in homelessness is I believe it's going to be later this year, if not early next year. Um, the Journal of Work is doing a special issue on homelessness. Um, and the guest editor is Caitlin Sinovic, and she has done a great job kind of curating a bunch of um, articles surrounding homelessness. We put a case study on health promotion in there. Um, and so if you're really interested in, in homelessness, I think that would be a great thing for you to check out. Um, I also happen to sit on the Mental Health SIS for AOTA, um, and I highly recommend checking out the SIS quarterly that comes with your OT practice. Um, I've Several of my articles have come in there and I've actually had a few more um, on the upcoming, but also there's a lot of great um, mental health articles that are coming out um, from a variety of different practitioners. So if you're not already checking out your SIS quarterly, make sure you're doing that. Um, make sure you're hitting up Community. The mental health forum is really active and especially if you're a student or a new practitioner and are really interested in learning more about this topic, go in there and ask questions and make connections. Um, obviously, well, I would say it's probably a little late. Uh, next week is the mental health specialty conference through AOTA, but it happens um, hopefully every two years. So hopefully you can check that out because, again, if you're really interested in mental health, it's a great place to network and um, meet new practitioners. And, um, yeah, that would be where my suggestions. Perfect, yeah. I think that, that covers all of it. Um, thanks again cool. so much for sharing your expertise um, and yeah. those recommendations. This has been another edition of How To OT. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time.